So today we're going to finish the book of 1 Timothy. And through this book, we've gotten a real and deep look at what a discipleship relationship looks like. Paul gives some real and sometimes tough instructions on how to avoid shipwrecking Timothy's faith and how to stay away from false teachers and how to keep high accountability of leaders and to not let his youth be an excuse for what he does or doesn't do for God. And this last chapter deals with work, money, and what is known in our culture as the American dream. So let's jump into 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 1. It says this, Let all who are under a yoke as bondservants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. If you look very far into this period of the Roman government, a big part of the economy was dependent on bond servants and indentured servants. Now, under the Roman law, these relationships were much more what we think of as slavery. Romans could beat their slaves and even kill them without repercussions. But under Mosaic law, they were commanded to treat these people much more like servants and many times even as family. In Jewish culture, you would often even see a servant choosing to stay with a family even after he was free to leave or even people opting into this bond servant opportunity because it was better than trying to make it on their own. And many times these servants were far better off than the day laborers because of the promise of food and clothing and shelter that went along with their commitment. Now, in the early time of Christianity, it was so important for uh, them to not allow the message of the gospel to get muddled with other things. Uh, We'd seen that happen to the gospel before, right? The gospel gets hijacked for political purposes. We saw that during the Crusades and the Inquisitions and the colonial witch trials where people take the gospel and they twist it in order to oppress people or to push a political agenda. And we still even see that happening today. And we as Christians need to make sure that we never let that happen to us. See, the gospel is the most important thing. In fact, when when the gospel is lived out, It puts everything else in order. And if the early Christians would have started this slave rebellion, it would have taken over the purpose of their movement, and they would have simply been labeled as terrorists by the Roman government. But much like the uh, Reverend Martin Luther King, instead they set out to be an example of human brotherhood and peaceful protest, an example that every person has value simply because they were created by God. This same message motivated the abolitionist Christian movements led by people such as William Wilberforce, John Wesley, Charles Finney, Harriet Beecher Stowe, John Newton, and the Pennsylvania Quakers. Even though many corrupt American Christians did twist scripture to oppress slaves in our country, Christianity did indeed abolish slavery. In this verse, we see Paul urges them to be faithful laborers because how a believer acts when he's under the authority of another affects how people view the message of salvation that Christianity promises. Our relationship with Christ should affect how we work in our place of employment. See, people will judge your God by how you carry yourself at work. People will judge your God by how you carry yourself at work. 
See, we can work at McDonald's and preach a message with how we carry ourselves. Even when our boss is unfair, even when our coworkers throw us under the bus, our work is worship. And people will judge the gospel on how you react at work. The next verse deals with not taking advantage of our employers when they are believers. In fact, we should work even harder. Uh, Verse 2 goes on and says this. Those that have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the grounds that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. Next, Paul jumps back into more warnings about false teachers in verse 3. Paul says, teach and urge these things. If anyone teaches a different doctrine or does not agree with the sound words of the Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, then he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, and evil suspicions. In earlier chapters uh, in the book of Timothy, Paul says that false teachers are obsessed with vain discussions and silly myths. And here Paul says that they crave controversy and they're puffed up with pride and they fight over terminology and words. And these are descriptions of what false teachers look like, people that crave controversy. They're prideful people. They're, uh, they fight over the way that you say things. In fact, the, the phrase there, quarrels about words, literally means word battles. Word battles. Now, I think that's something different than rap battles. I'm pretty sure. They say word battles here, but they fight endlessly about how things are said and they cause division. And ultimately, you will know a false teacher because they cause disunity rather than unity. Paul then tells us part of what motivates false teachers. In verse 5, it says, false teachers crave constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth. Imagining, look at this, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. Boom, right? Truth bomb right there. This is the real motivation behind these false teachers. All this arguing and controversy is really motivated by gain. Maybe it's political gain, maybe it's monetary gain, but they're motivated by gain. If you see a pastor with a private plane, you need to check out that message, okay? There's something wrong there. Now, full disclosure, I do own a 2013 neon green Jeep Wrangler. I just want to throw that out there so you don't think I'm a hypocrite. We call it the green machine. You can call it that too if you want to. I'll let you. But if you see a preacher tell you that you can have all the wealth that you want if only you send him your money, hey, you better check out that message. There's something wrong there. And Paul tells Timothy that money, wealth, and material things are not our focus In verse 6, it tells us that godliness with contentment is great gain. Godliness with contentment is great gain. See, godliness is not a means for gain. Godliness in and of itself is great gain. See, we don't worship God to get things. We worship God to get more of God. He is the end goal. God is the end-all, be-all. A close walk with Jesus is our focus. 
First Timothy 6, 7 goes on, says, For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. Job said it this way. He said, I came into the world in my birthday suit, and that's the way that I'm going to leave. I guess he's not having an open casket. <laughs> there was once an old man who was up in his attic rummaging around. His wife came up and found him and was like, what are you doing up here? Well, he said, you know, I want to be sure that when I die, I have something up there with me, right? So he's had this box of gold coins. He was putting it right over his bed in the attic above him. And he said, I want to make sure that when I go up, I can grab this stuff so that I'll have something up there in heaven. Well, a few months goes by, and, and that man does end up passing away. And his wife gets a little bit curious after a little while, goes up in the attic, finds this box untouched. And she says, man, I knew we should have put it in the basement. <laughs> See, <laughs> you can't take it with you. That's the point here. So don't make life all about money. We've got so many examples of men and women that have accrued great wealth and realized in the end that it's empty. Solomon is probably the greatest example. The wealthiest man in the Bible said it's all vanity. Vanity, vanity. He talks about his fountains and his gardens and his money and his houses and his horses. And he says it's all vanity. I have everything that you could possibly ever want and it's empty. But no, I'm sure that money will fill your needs, right? I'm sure that it'll make you happy if you just had a little bit more. I'm sure you'll be the one person that finally fills the void in your life. Hashtag sarcasm, if you haven't been able to tell so far. Verse 8 says, if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. God didn't promise us wealth, but he did promise to take care of believers' needs. So we can be content. Isn't that awesome? Hey, you, you might not have all the money in the world, but if you are walking and following after God, you have a relationship who does, with, uh, with someone who does have all the money in the world. Isn't that so? What would you rather have? You would rather have a bank account full of cash or be able to rely on a God that made the universe? Hey, you've got something better than all those things. So if we have food and clothing, we can be content. Verse 9, it says this, For those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. See, those that live for riches are trapped. They're trapped. Christopher Wallace said it best, better known as the notorious B.I.G., more money, more problems. Amen? More money, more problems. Hey, you think money's going to solve all your problems, but hey, have you ever known somebody that owns a boat? If you own a boat, I'm not throwing you under the bus. But what you will find out very quickly, it's better to borrow a boat than own a boat. The maintenance that goes in, they're always in the shop. The more you have, the more problems you have. Money doesn't solve your problems. See, the problem is that the love and the desire and the desperate 
and the passion for the money motivates all kinds of evil. And some preachers have even fallen into this love affair with wealth. So watch out. Money is necessary, though. It's not evil in and of itself. It is a gift from God. But just like we talked about last week, unbalanced affection for something is dangerous. You've got to order your life well. You've got to make sure that there's a balance in your life and priorities are set up. So don't make money the idol you sacrifice your family for. Don't make money the idol that you sacrifice your faith and your freedom for. See, many have left the church chasing money. They work overtime. They work weekends. They leave the places that God has called them. They compromise their integrity to chase riches. Many have lost their family for that same reason, working extra, working overtime, trying to get to the next level, trying to get into the next tax bracket, trying to get into the next house that finally will solve all of their problems. And all along, their children are there just wanting daddy to be home. Money will not solve your problems. I hear it all the time where uh, people like to say, I, I want to give my children more than I, I have. Why don't you give your children more of yourself? How about you give your children more of your time rather than more stuff that breaks and withers away and does not last for eternity? They've left the important things and brought themselves into pain. Paul tells Timothy, run away from those things and pursue righteousness and right thinking. Pursue godliness, pursue faith, love, and steadiness. In verse 11, it says, but as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Life walking in step with God will not come easy. You have to fight for it. You have to fight for the faith. There are so many things that are pulling at you. There are so many uh, emergencies seemingly out there that want to take your attention. But Paul says, pursue righteousness and fight for faith. There are all kinds of lies circulating. You have to fight the lies with truth. And the truth is found in God's word. John MacArthur said, says this, that these verses show us that the man of God is known by first what he flees from, what he follows after, what he fights for, and what he is faithful to. What are the answers to those questions for you? What are you fleeing from? What are you following after? What are you fighting for? And what are you faithful to? Fight the good fight of faith. 1 Timothy 6.12 goes on. He said, fight the good fight of faith. Well, what does that look like? It explains it here. He says, take hold of eternal life to which you were called, about which you were made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ who's in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession. He says, I charge you in the presence of God and Jesus to do what? To keep the commandment unstained and free from approach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time. He who is blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, 
I thought that was a pretty good phrase there because Paul is someone that experienced that unapproachable light on his road to Damascus, and it blinded him for a few days. He saw that unapproachable light, and it goes on and says, who no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Fight the good fight of faith. Hold on to the truth. Even in the face of opposition, Jesus is our example. Live like he did till he comes back. See, Paul wants to clarify one last thing as we end out this chapter. Being rich isn't bad. Being rich can be a huge blessing. Even though pursuing money as a life goal can lead to all kinds of evil, that doesn't mean that money in and of itself is evil. Verse 17 says, as for the rich... In this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good and to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasures for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Man, isn't that an awesome set of verses? If you're rich, the Bible doesn't condemn you for that, but it warns you not to let yourself believe that your wealth makes you somehow better than anyone else. It doesn't make you uh, arrogant and prideful because don't people know who I am? No, God, God says here, make sure you're ready to share. Don't put your faith and trust in your money. Also be careful not to set your hopes in your money, but set your hope on God. Now, don't forget the majority of us here in this room today are in the top 1% wealthiest people in the world. So when we see these words about being rich, I know most of us are like, oh, that's not me. I'm going to turn off my brain here. That's not true. When you take the whole world into account, we are blessed and we are rich. And because we are, should we feel guilty over that? No. God has given this to us. So go and enjoy your jet ski, right? And ride it all around and, and say, you know, hallelujah. But that doesn't mean we put our faith in that. Here it says God gave us those things to enjoy. But also, those of us that are blessed abundantly are urged to bless others abundantly. It says better than being monetarily rich, it is better to be rich in good works, to be generous, ready to share, and what this is really telling us to do is to hold on to the view of eternal life, to get a grip on the fact that this reality is temporary. What you know of as life is only a small portion of what life really is. Francis Chan gives the example of a long piece of rope. I mean, it was, you know, hundreds and hundreds of feet long. And he's talking, he's talking, he's talking. And he's trying to give an example on what eternity looks like. And the very tip of this rope was red. And he said, this is our life. And then he just begins to pull and pull and pull. This rest of this rope is eternal life. And that eternal life goes on and on and on and on. If you know, if you've been around very long, you know that life is going by at a pace that we cannot slow down. And it will not slow down. You will blink your eyes and you will be all of a sudden like I am, got gray hair. It's bad when your mom says, man, you got a lot of gray hair. I'm like, come on, mom. Jeez. Thanks a lot. And then I say, at least I have my hair. Whoa. 
That's a joke at Jared right here. <laughs> he can take it. He's fine. But hey, life is long. It feels long in the moments, but it really is going by very quickly. And seeing the next life is what really matters. How are you going to live your eternity? You've got to have a long view on this thing called life. Paul signs off with one last reminder about false teaching in verse 20. It says, O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid irreverent babbling and contradictions about what is falsely called knowledge. For by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. Grace be to you. Paul says here, I just dropped some knowledge on you. Paul says, I just deposited some wisdom. Guard it. Stay away from the noise and what is falsely called knowledge that has wrecked some people's faith because they swerved from the truth. And this closes Paul's first letter to Timothy, his protege and the pastor of the church of Ephesus. This last chapter has important ideals for each and every one of our lives. First, that people will judge your God on how you carry yourself at work. Next, that godliness is not a means for gain. Godliness is in itself gain. We don't worship God to get things. We worship God to get more of God. But also, that those of us who are blessed abundantly are urged to bless others abundantly. For we brought nothing into this world and we will take nothing out of this world. And this is what I believe that God wants you to know today, is that God has bigger dreams for your life than the American dream. God has bigger dreams for your life than the American dream. Let's all stand to our feet and bow our heads. The worship band's going to come. What are you living this life for? An easy way to tell where you place your hope and your faith is what makes you angry and what makes you scared. When you lose a little bit of money, does it make you angry? When the stock market goes down, is it fearful for you? Hey, those things are just temporary. You know the God that owns it all. And the Bible tells us that we can be content with food and clothing. Every head's bowed and eyes closed. Where do you place your hope and faith today? How's your testimony at work? Are you known as someone that does what's right even when it doesn't make sense? Even when it kind of gets you into a bind? Are people mad because you always are the one that does what's right? That can be a tough thing to be. Especially if you're in a sales position or some position where it's easier to just Bend the truth a little bit than it is to say things the way they really are. We got to remember that godliness is not a means for gain. Godliness in and of itself is great gain. I don't know why you're here today. Maybe you've got a big need on your heart. I believe God may have given you that need to help you to want him. Because in the end, he's the really only one that fills any of our needs. 
Don't worship God for things. Worship God for God. Every head's bowed and eyes closed. Altar's open this morning. If you got anything on your heart, God spoke to you about anything. I've been in many services before where the pastor preached about something and God was dealing in my heart about something totally different. Maybe that's you today. There's something special about getting in a posture of prayer and something special about not waiting and just saying, God, I don't care who sees me. I care about you more than anything else. This altar isn't a magical place or anything like that, but it is a place of surrender. God spoke to your heart about anything at all. Maybe you have a need, a loved one that's sick. You come down right now.